Tonight we're going to consider the glorious future of the kingdom of God. You know, if we would learn to live and to speak the way we sing, our lives would be very different. All of the songs that we have sung uh, today are glorious, hopeful, jubilant, victorious. They express tremendous confidence and faith in the power of God to accomplish His purposes in the world. And then when we stop singing, we begin to talk about evil conspiracies controlling the government and the imminent decline of all things in the world, that our world around us is getting darker and worse and more evil all the time. And oh, for the days when the gospel actually was impressive to people and had the power to save the lost. Oh, for the days when people cared about God. But those days are past. Troublesome times are here. Jesus is coming soon, no doubt about it. And the best that we can hope for is to keep the lights on until he gets back. Hunker down and hold the fort a little longer. That's how we talk. Not how we sing, thank God, but that's how we talk. And I want to challenge that kind of talk tonight with the Bible. I want to challenge you to think differently about the future in light of the kingdom of God. We're going to read two passages of scripture to introduce our study. The first from the book of Isaiah, the 49th chapter and verse 6. These are the words of God our creator. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And now we turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are some of the last words that Jesus Christ spoke before he left this world to return to the Father. He said to his apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and into Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Salvation to the ends of the earth. Before he returned to heaven... Jesus gave marching orders to his disciples regarding what they should do on earth after he was gone. And these orders relate to the mission of the kingdom, the reason he was given all authority in heaven and on earth for the last days of the present system. The orders were given at least four times on four separate occasions. These are as many as the scripture records, during a 40-day period between the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. In our study tonight, I want to consider how those marching orders relate to the major biblical theme, very prominent and coming to fruition uh, when we read the New Testament, but one that permeates the whole Bible. 
kingdom of God. We begin all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. God creates the heavens and the earth. He fashions outer space and the atmosphere, the oceans and the seas, the dry land to be suitable habitations for the planets and the stars and the great sea creatures and the birds, the cattle and the beasts of the field and every creeping thing that creeps along the face of the ground. When he has formed these dwelling places, he fills them. And now everywhere in the universe are monuments to and manifestations of the wisdom and power and glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the vault of the sky shows his skill. Psalm 96, 11 and 12 says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. And let the trees of the forest sing for joy. You see, all of creation was made for God's glory and praise. But the lower creation, the forces of nature and the beings in nature that we have just described are not sufficient in and of themselves to give God the fullness of the glory that he desires and deserves. So when God had done all of these other things, the Bible says that he placed a crown on nature's head. Humanity. Genesis 1, 26-27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the face of the earth, and over all the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. What does it mean to be the image bearer and to have the likeness of God in ourselves? This is a, a difficult question that has perplexed Bible students for many, many years. But I think that at least we can say that there is a sense in which this refers to the form of humanity, how we are made, and there is a sense in which it refers to the content of humanity, who we are and how we live, and these two are very carefully and closely connected. The form of the image of God refers to the uniqueness of human personhood. Humans are created differently from all other creatures in the universe. Humans have the capacities of personal consciousness, intelligence, language, volition, moral reasoning, emotion or feeling, and creativity. We have the ability to bring together things in the world around us like words and musical notes and colors and make something beautiful out of them, just like God, our Creator, because we are made 
as reflections or representations of him. And the combination of all of these capacities in a physical creature capable of reproducing something just like itself, generation after generation after generation, multitudes that can move across the face of the earth and grow and expand and increase, all of that makes humanity different and sets us apart from everything else created by God. And this unique form gives us the ability to possess the content of the image of God. That is, God made us this way so that we could do certain special things. We can know God. We can receive God's love intelligently. And we can love him in return. With our minds we are actually able to grasp certain aspects of God's glory and magnificence. And then to acknowledge them and to express them with our mouths and with our lives. That is, we have the ability to worship. We have the capacity to think about who God is and make the personal decision to do what he says because of who he is. That is, we can be obedient to God. We are able to be his servants in fellowship with him. And because we are different from all of creation, we have the power to have dominion over the lower creation. If you had told man 4,000 years ago that one day he would walk on the moon, One day he would be able to send cameras out into the furthest reaches of space and take photographs of black holes and consider things like dark matter. He would have never even understood. But of course if you'd told Adam, he might have said, well, I can't fly, but God told me to have dominion over the birds of the air. You see, God made us with these tremendous capabilities to discover and understand and subjugate and utilize creation for our good and His glory according to His will. This brings us to Genesis 1.28. God, when He had created the man and the woman, blessed them. He empowered them. And He said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want you to consider this very carefully. God made man to be his image and likeness in the world. To harness the lower creation under God's supreme rule so that he might bring about God's ultimate glory Throughout the universe, when God created Adam and Eve, they had both the form and the content of the image and likeness of God. And so God gave to Adam and to humanity in him a great commission. He said, go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, And make others like you. Regenerate. Expand. Procreate. 
until there are more and more who are like you and able to do the things I made you to do. God did not wish to be glorified in Eden alone. He wished for Eden to spread and to fill the planet and for man as his priesthood, with earth as his throne to emanate God's glory to the uttermost parts of creation. And then the earth would be full of the knowledge and the glory of the Lord like the waters that cover the sea. Remember that phrase if you've not heard it before. Put it in your heart because it was a favorite expression of the prophets to think about God's grand and eternal purpose in history. But Adam did not fulfill this great commission. Instead, Adam and Eve sacrificed the content of the image of God in themselves through sin and they became rebels against God through the temptation of the devil. They broke away from his kingdom and helped to create a rival kingdom in the midst of God's creation, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. While I believe the narrative of Scripture shows God reclaiming Adam and Eve themselves, through their sin, sin and death entered into God's formerly good creation and brought curses and corruptions and humanity divided into those who call on the name of the Lord, Genesis 4.26, that is those who continued to honor God as king and submit to his rule and sought to fulfill their purpose in the world and the others who rejected God's authority and became rebels, children of the devil, descendants of the serpent, mere men. And Genesis 6, 1 says, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and those two segments of humanity that had been for a while separated, not only spiritually but even geographically, met again, the latter wicked, worldly crowd eventually overtook the righteous and God-fearing, and through them the earth was filled, Genesis 6 and verse 13 says, but not with the knowledge and glory of the Lord. Through them the earth was filled with violence and only evil continually. So God destroyed that world. And that brings us to the other side of the flood. I trust we know the story well enough to know how God saved Noah and his small family who loved and respected God as the true king of creation. And when Noah and his family emerged from the ark into a new world, washed clean from its former evils, God gave Noah a great commission. In fact, the very same great commission he had previously given to Adam. Genesis 9 and verse 6, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And he reaffirmed his image in man and his intentions for man and through man. But Noah did not fulfill this great commission. The Bible says that Noah's family even resisted the command to fill the earth. They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city and a tower lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. In express defiance 
of God's direct instruction. They thought that they were great. The Bible humorously says that God had to come down to see their tower, whose top was in the heavens. God is so great and so highly exalted above the works of man, he had to come down to examine it. And when he saw mankind's rejection of his purpose, the Bible says he confused their language and he scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Genesis 11 and verse 9. So now the earth was filled once again with humans, but once again not with the knowledge and glory of the Lord. Instead, they filled it with delusion and ignorance and lies and rebellion and evil and sin. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he discusses the course these people took in Romans chapter 1. When he says, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. But rather they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as God did not see fit, or rather just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, and did not wish to retain Him in their minds, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but give their hearty approval to those who practice them. This morning we discussed the human condition through the fallenness of our race and our world. It is one of ignorance and weakness and instability and deception. And many human beings have embraced that condition and made it their identity. And this is what man has done to God's creation. But this time God did not destroy mankind. Instead, he searched across the face of the earth and he found a man who he called out for himself from the midst of all these people, a man who loved him and who worshipped him, a man named Abraham. 
And he made him separate from the nations, which is the literal meaning of the word Gentiles. And God gave a promise to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse the one who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, note the difference here. There is a commission, but not like the one we've read so far. It's not to fill the earth, but rather to come out from among them and be separate and to live in their midst as a light to them, to draw them to the honor and glory and adoration of God. And if this commission is followed, it will result in a blessing to all the families that fill the earth now. In time, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham of many descendants who would become a great nation, and Israel was the result. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he appeared to them at Mount Sinai, and he made them a promise, and he gave a commission to them. Exodus chapter 19 verse 4, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be mine own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now I want to ask you a question to consider in your mind and listen very carefully because it's very subtle in, in many ways. Was Jesus the fulfillment of Israel's mission? Or did Jesus fulfill Israel's mission? Now you might say, what's the difference? Let me try to unpack what I mean by that. When I was a young man and throughout much of my life as a Christian, I understood that the reason there was an Israel, perhaps the only reason, was so that there could be a family into which Jesus could be born. Of course, that doesn't require a nation. That could be accomplished with just two people, or in Jesus' case, just one person. But I reasoned that there needed to be a nation of some sort to help ensure that the family of Jesus would be holy and would worship the one true God and would have a safe environment in which to have that kind of a relationship with the Creator. Now, even as I speak it now, I know enough Bible, I begin to see the weakness in that view. But that's what I thought about Israel. And what I thought about the whole Old Testament for many years. Israel was created to give birth to Jesus. And the law was given to keep Israel holy just until the time that Jesus was to be born. But you know within that framework there are large sections of the law. Not to mention the wisdom literature and especially the prophets that just don't make any sense. Because most of what the prophets said were not predictions about Jesus. It was words to the nations. Nations, many of which now that do not even exist. Why did God do that? Why did he spend so much time having his prophets speak against Edom, and then collect that material and put it in the Bible. 
Especially when there's so many questions we have that he didn't take the time to answer. Why all this stuff about Edom? What's the point? Why is any of that in the Bible at all? Well, I've come to believe that Israel did, in fact, have a mission from God that was larger than merely bringing about the birth of Jesus. And all of the law and the poetry and the wisdom and the prophets were integral to that mission. The mission is well summarized in these words from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of of your rising. In Isaiah chapter 42, he says, you shall be a light to me, to the Gentiles. Israel's mission was that while they remained separate from the nations, by their obedience to God and their faithfulness to God's covenant, they would manifest the glory of Yahweh in such a profound way that it would illuminate the world and the nations in their darkness would see it and they would be drawn to it. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, Moses said, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep them and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? If Israel had obeyed God's commandments and faithfully kept his covenant with them, then God would have given them abundant prosperity and victory over their enemies. If you read the the covenant blessings in the book of Deuteronomy, you find that the land of Canaan, which was going to be their inheritance, would have been the closest thing to the Garden of Eden since the Garden of Eden. No miscarriages among animals or humans, uh, very little disease, no war, no strife, very little crime and that which would come up would be swiftly dealt with and justice would prevail. The poor would be taken care of, the sick and the weak and the elderly would not be neglected. It would be a paradise and all the nations around them would look and they would see that Yahweh The God that their fathers had rejected was still the mighty king over all the earth. And he loved these people. And he loved all people. And he was calling them to him. The law of Moses was not racist, bigoted, and prejudicial as some ignorant, unbelieving people say today. The law of Moses was filled with admonitions 
and statutes of kindness to the stranger and the alien. And if it had been followed, it would have made it abundantly clear that God desired to share the blessings he gave to Israel with all peoples, even to the ends of the earth. God did not wish to be glorified in Jerusalem alone, but he wished for his glory to flow out from Jerusalem and fill the nations. But Israel did not fulfill their great commission. There was never a time in Israel's history, according to the Old Testament itself, when the people were significantly obedient to God and faithful to the covenant. Old Testament history instead intimates that many of the laws given by Moses were never followed, not once in all of Israel's history. There were times when no living man had observed Passover. They didn't know how to do it. There was a time when the temple was being renovated and the book of Deuteronomy was found. The high priest himself had not seen it, was unfamiliar with it. It was brought to the king and he read it and he had no idea nor did his subjects just how much they were transgressing God's instructions. A great reform was begun but it was short-lived and incomplete. For the first half of Israel's history, instead of living separate from the nations, they committed fornication with them, literally and spiritually. So God punished them with exile and captivity and when they returned... They went to the opposite extreme and instead of being a light to the nations, they developed an arrogant prejudice and hatred against them. There was only ever a small remnant, Isaiah says, a very small remnant of truly faithful people and in Israel. And when Jesus came, that remnant was the smallest it had ever been since the people were brought out of Egypt. For most of the time, there was just about 12. Then sometimes in better seasons, maybe 120, maybe 500. Israel on the whole had been diminished to the insignificant and despised Jews, scattered across the world, and in their own homeland, subjugated by Gentile nations for more than 400 years, even among those who were prepared by John the Baptizer, only a small number accepted that Jesus was the Christ. But Jesus took that remnant and he sanctified them and he filled them with the Spirit of God and he made them the Israel they were always meant to be. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the apostles asked a question about the restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Now modern readers, even some very scholarly gentlemen, often accuse the apostles here of being ignorant about the purposes of God. I suggest respectfully that when we make that accusation, we're the ignorant ones. We're the ones who are ill-informed. They were using the language of Jesus and the language of the prophets. Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 19, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory in the regeneration, you will sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes 
of Israel. Jesus came to restore the kingdom to Israel. That is what he came to do. To equip them to fulfill their mission and to fulfill their mission in himself. And once he had restored them, once he had made them truly a people filled with the glory of God, truly the kingdom of God present in the world, redeemed out of sin and rebellion, empowered by God's own Spirit, he gave them these instructions. Matthew 28, 18-20 All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with my image bearers. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and is baptized shall be saved, and he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So through the church which began with restored Israel, Jesus is fulfilling the mission of Israel and not even just the mission of Israel, the mission of Adam. He is completing finally the great purpose of God in creation from the very beginning. Listen again to Isaiah 49 and verse 6. God says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. That's where the apostles got that phrase. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. In Acts chapter 13 verse 47, Paul quotes this passage and he tells us that it was and is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But there's a pressing question I want us to consider. What will be the outcome of this great work of Christ? Every time it's been tried before, there was a failure. Will Christ be victorious? Will the Great Commission be successful? Will salvation reach to the ends of the earth? Virtually every Bible reader concludes that God's work in Christ has a glorious future. If you didn't believe that, would you even be a Christian? If you thought it was going to taper off and die, would you even bother being a part of it? No one, to my knowledge, thinks that way. Everybody sees some glory sometime down the road. Even with all that is already, there is more that is not yet. But one of the most controversial matters in Christian theology is how that future will unfold. And there are three major views of the future within the historic Christian stream of thought. And these views all find their definition around one's understanding of a single passage in Revelation chapter 20 
that describes Christ and some of his servants who died uh, for him, living and reigning for 1,000 years. I'm sure you're familiar with this scripture. Some take this 1,000-year period, or the millennium, as it's usually called, to be a literal span of just so long, and others take it to be somehow figurative or conceptual. Some understand that according to this passage, the glorious future stage of Christ's kingdom, when it can truly and experientially be said that Jesus is ruling the earth, will not happen until after Jesus comes again. And others think that it will not happen on this present earth at all but merely in the new heaven and the new earth, whatever it is that that means. Now I want to suggest that it's a mistake to build our understanding of the future around this passage in Revelation 20, the meaning of which is obscure and difficult. And instead, I want to consider with you a few other passages that by my understanding paint a much clearer picture of what God has declared shall come to pass through the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, consider Acts 2, 33-36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Now this is of course Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost and he quotes here from the 110th Psalm. A psalm that Jesus had earlier applied to himself in order to establish his divinity. But here Peter explains that uh, this line was fulfilled in the ascension of the resurrected Jesus when Jesus returned to heaven God sat him on David's throne Peter says that in Acts chapter 2 verses 30 through 31 it was not a literal chair on earth but it was authority in fulfillment of God's covenant with David given to Jesus in heaven to rule over his people and God said when he seated him there Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The phrase sit at my right hand seems to mean rule and reign as king. And God announces here that Jesus will rule and reign until, that's of course a time marker word, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We've talked about that several times this week. It's an idiom that refers to subjugation. God is saying, you are ruling now, and you will rule until you've conquered all of your enemies. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22-28, the Apostle Paul establishes the validity of this interpretation, and he explains further. He says, for as in Adam all die... So also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after those that are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end, when he hands the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be defeated is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put into subjection, 
It's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now that might sound confusing. And it is somewhat because for Paul's purposes, when he talks about all of this stuff, he he discusses it out of chronological sequence. But if you look carefully, you'll see that he uses the preposition until and the adverb then, which help mark out the actual sequence. And we can restructure the text rather easily and figure out what it's saying. So listen carefully. First, note that Paul also quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1. And he agrees with Peter. This means Christ is already reigning. And then he makes this awesome declaration. He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be defeated is death at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands the kingdom over to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one, that is God, who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. When we put these two passages together, we have a clear prophecy of Christ's work in the world that declares it will be progressively successful throughout history. He is reigning from heaven. His reign must continue until he has conquered and subjugated all of his enemies. And when he comes again, Paul says it will not be to start his reign, but to end it. When he comes again, he will return to a world that he has conquered by the Great Commission through conversion and transformation and unification and education of mankind. And it's now ready to give back over to God the Father. Think about what Paul says. The last enemy that will be defeated is death that is coming through the resurrection. The last enemy. This implies that there will be other enemies who are defeated before this. Well, what kind of enemies is Jesus defeating now? And will he progressively and continually defeat up to the time of his coming? The Apostle Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, divinely powerful for the pulling down of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He's just describing converting sinners and turning them into Christ-like people and bringing them together in a community of love and teaching them the truth about God. And this says that these things will result in a weakening power of sin over the world and an increasing maturity of faith in the church. Paul says that the exalted Christ has given gifts to his people on earth, principally gifts of instruction in the will of God for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness which belongs to Christ, Ephesians 4, 12-14. That's God's work right now. In the end, death will be defeated, but now sin 
is being defeated. And it will be defeated more and more and more wherever Christ's gospel is accepted. How does this sort of thing happen? Through the conversion of the lost, the transformation of the saved into the image of Christ, the unification of believers and the increase of the knowledge of God. This is God's plan for the future. The Great Commission will succeed and it must succeed before the conclusion of Christ's reign. The nations must be turned to Christ and baptized for the remission of their sins and they must be taught to submit to him and obey him as king in all things. And the Bible says this is a prerequisite to his coming again. Listen to the words of Peter once more, this time in Acts 3, 19-21. Therefore, repent and return or be converted or we might say as he did in Acts 2, 38, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins so that your sins might be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and so that he might send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of the restoration of all things. These texts all agree that before Christ returns through the success of the work of the gospel, through conversion and spiritual growth and increased understanding of what the Bible teaches, the kingdom of God will grow and increase in some marvelous way, too sublime for me to understand. I cannot picture it, I cannot imagine it, I cannot articulate it, but the Bible says it will culminate in all enemies being put under Christ's feet and all things being restored and then God will send Jesus and then comes the end. And with this, the words of the prophets and of our Lord Jesus himself agree. The prophets saw the kingdom as a little stone It struck the nations to destroy them and it grew and became a great mountain that filled the whole earth, Daniel 2 and 35. The prophet Ezekiel saw out from the under the temple a little stream trickling by his feet. But the further it flowed, it became a great river and a great ocean and it watered the whole earth for the healing of the nations, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. The prophet said that when Messiah came to do his work, The earth will be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord like the waters that cover the sea. Isaiah 11 and verse 9, Habakkuk 2 and verse 14. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a little seed that grows and becomes a great tree and fills the whole earth and blesses all creation. It is like a little measure of leaven that is hidden in a lump of dough and in the end it permeates and the whole lump is leavened and everything it touches is changed. God is winning back his world and accomplishing his purposes and he will not grow weary or be discouraged until he has established justice in the uttermost parts of the earth. He will not relent until his glory is manifest to all the nations And his ultimate reason for making it all to begin with has been fulfilled. This is a beautiful aspect of the Bible story that Satan would blind us to. Somehow we managed to sing it. 
and then avoid speaking it or living it. What did we sing just before I rose into this pulpit? Rise up, O men of God. The kingdom tarries long. Bring in the day of brotherhood and end the night of wrong. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? The Bible teaches it. Do you believe it? Will you trust in it? Will you let it transform your life? God's purpose and plan is to conquer the world. He can begin right now by conquering you this very evening. By conquering your life and your family, your congregation, and putting it under his feet. How can you contribute to this glorious purpose? Peter said, repent therefore and be converted. Repent and be baptized so that your sins might be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord so that he may send Jesus who the heavens must receive until the time of the restoration of all things and all things includes you. Now it's important to recognize something as I give this invitation, I, I told a few nights ago that Christ is not only a Savior, He is a restorer. In His work of restoration, He will save what can be saved, and He will destroy what cannot be saved. I think it's very possible that it may be necessary for God to destroy the United States of America in order for His kingdom to succeed in this world. He had to destroy Babylon and Assyria and Egypt and Rome and Greece and Persia. Will he have to destroy you? Or will you submit to him? Will you bow your knee to him and confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, King of glory, Lord of your life, and become his subject?